This is Shooting Wall's second podcast. Shooting Wall is a do-it-yourself collective of filmmakers, film theorists, critics, and cinephiles. My name is John Seidman. I am your host. For this podcast, we have audio from two interviews. First one is with Doug Sackman, the former owner of the 941 Theater in Northern Liberties. And the second interview is with a filmmaker from Conchahawken. His name is Dante Alamad. We also have audio from a recent group discussion about the Luc Mouillet film, Sieges of Alcazar. This is the interview with Doug Sackman, owner of the 941 Theater. Unfortunately, this movie theater is now closed, but while it was in operation, it was dedicated to playing new films from low-budget filmmakers from Philly and beyond. Films by filmmakers who otherwise have no venue for their films. 941 Theater was the place to show them. Doug explains his theater and why it's no longer with us. Experiences, you know, with with having the nine for one theater, did you feel like filmmakers and audience liked having that venue for local independent cinema? And they were, did you think they were receptive to that? Well, I mean, certainly it was uh, amazing thing for the independent film scene in Philly. I mean, personally, as a filmmaker, and just knowing uh, what else is out there in Philly and. Actually, internet, internationally, we've, we've, we've been doing the uh, the Backseat Film Festival we haven't done in the last year or so, but um, we, uh, we ran our own personal film festival for seven years, and before that, I was a uh, director and programming for a few other film festivals, mm-hmm. internationally and domestically. Mm-hmm. And basically, we had toured around and, and showed our movies at places like this in other areas, other cities, but there was nothing like this in Philly at all. Uh-huh. So, right. if you show, you know, for a day at a film festival or, you know, in 
behind some weird screen or it, you're not gonna you're ignored by the press. And it's, it's really it's a shame because there's a lot of good movies that come through Philly and through yeah. every every major city, but you have to have a, a weird theatrical one to get weren't getting reviewed, you know, and it's, it's, right. uh, it's sad. So did you find then that, I mean, it sounds like, and I agree that there is a place for that in Philly, but did you find that opening this theater was difficult, that it was difficult to get people to come in, that it was difficult to people to take you seriously? No, it wasn't difficult at all. I mean, in terms of what we're doing, we had already established ourselves as a brush company and a film that's on Philly for seven years before we opened the theater. Uh-huh. And it was just the next step, the next evolution in our, in our I guess, our, our, our business and our, our, our film career to open a theater. Right. But once it was open, you know, it was, we, we won Best New Venue of Philadelphia Weekly and, uh, what is it, Philadelphia Magazine, also Best New Venue, you know, in 2009, the same week we were getting shut down by by L&I and, and being shut down because, you know, it, it, it was a very weird situation, very weird situation. Okay. By, by the end of it, but... Well, do you think from your experience that it's possible to, for someone or you or to open another theater like this and to remain open? No, it's not possible. We will never open another public business in Philadelphia because of the experience we have in the 941 Theater. Really? It's, wow. it's that, like, uh, New York, we could have done it in New York and still been open. Uh-huh. We didn't have the money, you know? It's like, right. Philadelphia, the reason, because I'm from New York, our company is from New York, and the reason with Philadelphia was because it was so much cheaper, you know? You can open a closet in New York for the price of a warehouse in Philadelphia. Right. Uh, but when it comes to business-wise, you know, you can open a closet in Midtown Manhattan and not worry about, you know, in Philadelphia you have to prove you have parking for as many people that are going to be in there, you have to serve the neighbors. Even in the shittiest part, I mean, I don't know if you know what a 941 was, but it was under the 95, under a uh, freeway. Uh-huh. You know, and there was no way our, our theater could have made more noise than the freeway that, that was above right. the theater, but the neighbors still found a way to uh, warrant that Elvis, you know, regulating the hours. And, and Philadelphia's just, it's a weird, they, they say they promote business, but in the end, they try to shut down. Casinos is a good example of that, like saying, you know, there's going to be traffic jams every day, uh-huh. uh, you know, for the rest of our lives. Meanwhile, you know, it's in the parking lot there has been no increase in any kind of traffic over there. It's, you know, people go because you know, stay over there. Right, right. So you think that the city really doesn't uh, have an atmosphere or an environment where something like 941 or something like that could really thrive? Certainly not in North Philly. Okay. I mean, you know, if you have hundreds of thousands of dollars to put into an endeavor and spend three or four years of your life not doing anything else, yes. Okay. Maybe you put drive, but as an independent, right, yeah. as someone who's, I mean, like it was a constant fight for three years and it was a constant fight to stay open. Yeah. You know, the overhead far outweighs the, the amount of money we're making by showing movies and, and we had to eventually start having bands play and dance parties and things like this, but, you know, it's still, uh, yeah, the overhead far outweighs the uh, the reward for yeah. Hmm. Oh, well, and and okay. I mean, we weren't we were trying to make money. I mean, obviously, right. the goal in the end was to make money with it, but to have a showcase for our friends' movies and, and movies that we believe in to come right. to affiliate and be seen yeah. where they wouldn't be seen otherwise. You know, yeah. and and that's really we we still believe in that. You know, we basically since you know doing the film festival and the theater have realize, you know, we've done so much to get other people's movies shown. We'll all make our own movies, uh-huh. but it, it's ultimately hindered our ability to make movies by supporting other people's movies, you know, so right. we're, we're focused on making our movies now, and obviously we're, we're involved with film festivals and conventions and things like that, and support, and you know, we have a, a network of filmmakers we work with still from the theater and from the film festival, but terms of uh, taking the bullet and opening a theater, mm-hmm. so, I should have listened to the Roxy six years ago. Right. 
saying name for opening the theater because you know we ultimately came out okay in the end we basically broke even yeah we still have some, some debt that we have to pay off here and there because of it mm-hmm. but it, it was a good experience overall you know I, I don't regret it uh-huh. but it is it soured you a bit to the idea of having a venue for local film like that in Philadelphia anything any kind of venue in Philadelphia yes definitely okay. I mean just the experience of working with LMI and and city of Philadelphia and the zoning and you know all the the loops that make you jump through right. definitely I would never open I mean I would go to LA or New York and open another business for Philadelphia certainly with that being said I mean do, what do you think the future of sort of micro cinemas or self-distribution or independent filmmakers getting their stuff screened in Philadelphia is? Do you think it's just going to get more difficult because venues like yours can't stay open? Well, I mean, really what it is, and it's come from, you know, I've been making movies for about 13 years now, and it is a long time, I, I guess, today's standards, but I've, I've, I've known people who have been making movies for 40 years, 50 years, and it's still the same I guess there's a 10-year increment in this kind of situation, but 10 years ago, when I started making movies, there were a lot of other businesses like the 941 Theater, the Pioneer Theater in New York, the College Corner Cinema in Boston, mm-hmm. um, you know, just a lot of different places that were more open to this as, you know, independent filmmakers and showing movies. And I hate the word independent, actually. I kind of uh, learned through trauma. I worked for trauma for three years. I was the head of production from 1999 to 2002. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Lloyd Kaufman and Death, and I love the company, but, you know, they they are the oldest independent movie series in the world, 40 years. I yeah. mean, Roger Corman is still doing his thing, but he's not, you know, he, it's, it's his company, you know, he's, he is technically a little bit older than Lloyd, but Lloyd is personally overseeing his empire. He's still, to this day, he's the oldest, op, oldest operating movie series in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, if he'll tell you that, One of the members of Shooting Wall, Joshua Martin, held a show and tell at his home where he played one of his own short films, then followed that with a film which he says has inspired him. A small group of us then had a discussion of the film, which was Luke Mouillet's The Sieges of Alcazar. It's from 1989 and takes place a few decades prior, 1955 Paris to be exact. The film is a look at French film critics and is about a confrontation between a man from the French film magazine Cahiers du Cinema and a woman from the rival film magazine all right so we just watched Sieges of Alcazar. Um, now that we've seen something by Mouillet, just kind of talk about him a little bit, put him into context. Uh, so he's sort of a late figure with Cahiers du Cinema coming in very end of the 50s, kind of between the transition from critics to when the big names were kind of transitioning to making their first films, Godard, Truffaut, Chabral. Um, and he's young when he starts, he's like 20, I think 1957, 58. Um, and so he comes in at Cahiers and he's writing about, I think he wrote also wrote a book about Fritz Lang, if I'm mistaken, one of the first in French. Um, so he comes in young and by the time he gets there, it's kind of past the prime and they're moving into making their own films. So I guess he would be considered uh, sort of a post-New Wave filmmaker along the lines of somebody maybe like... Uh, Jean Ustache, who's sort of within the group, who knows the group, but is kind of outside them, not sort of their age and not writing at the same time as them. And uh, Mouillet makes his first film in 66, his first feature, Brigitte and Brigitte, which is very absurd uh, as well. But there's, he always takes it with a sort of 
humor to the idea of cinephilia of being obsessed particularly with the american films and i think we see in this film but anyway so mouye kind of that's sort of where he comes from he never really at least not in america i don't know what his reputation is in europe i don't think he's very well known but he's definitely somewhat of an outsider in that group he's not very well known here just a couple years ago a box set finally came out with a handful of his films all of which i suggest checking out they're all great they're all about cinema in some way or they make fun of cinema in some way and he's very much a minimalist and somebody who's interested in humor i think it's appropriate what, when Ben and I were talking about him once, he said, Mouillet is a filmmaker who makes movies that aren't like big laughs, they're little laughs. So it's kind of like each scene is a little laugh and they're just kind of consistently funny. There's just sort of this kind of like feeling throughout the whole film of just kind of you're always ready to laugh, I guess, which is what I like about his films. And what I like about this film, like I said, was that it's about cinephilia and it doesn't take itself too seriously. It's funny, you know, and it's also kind of about I guess the pains of being a cinephile in a way the difficulty sometimes of going to the movie theater to see something especially going to a movie theater doesn't cater to cinephilia so there's a there, and I think we can still see it now it's a little different but there is something very absurd about when you decide oh I'd like to go see this film at a Regency 20 or whatever there is something bizarre about that experience and you do have to deal with these kind of things that we see in the film so it's kind of funny but all right anyway i guess i'll open it up to other people's thoughts about about the film at this point was the uh, importance of the seating arrangements there is you have to pick a seat in the movie theater and you sometimes you pay a different price based on where the seat's at and that's something that's still in place actually at least in 2006 earlier in the in, in the film he said that he wasn't going to um to pay more for a, a smaller picture um, it, the seats yeah. got him closer to it. Yeah, there's this idea the in of yeah, pure cinephilia, like right, proximity yeah. and like <laughs> yeah. immersion in the image somehow as a more yeah. I think yeah. there's this idea amongst that group that the closer you sat to the screen, the better experience you got. You sort of could be the first to kind of experience the film. So I think that's kind of a reference to kind of this whole idea of cinephilia that yeah, you sit as close as possible. Uh, to the screen. Um. This might be too big of a question for, for for right now within this film and in the context of what you showed that you made, but um, uh, we, we've said the word uh, minimalism a lot, and I'm not clear as to what anyone means by it. Um, I mean, like, are we, are we talking about uh, from the perspective of the one who's producing that there's like a minimum of material that flows out are we talking about the experience of someone who receives it in that there is like some sort of a like a complete um uh, a pictorial blankness um what is meant by blankness in defining minimalism that way i think when it comes to this that the minimalism would be i think there's a flatness to mouye and there's a the sense that he's not really going to deviate very much from a very just square flat frame and people within that frame there's not really any i mean i guess you wouldn't call it a beautiful film there's no beauty in his images the, the camera is not expressive okay. right. yeah the exactly. there's no expressive camera movement or lighting yeah. i mean the lighting is very uh functional like when yeah. you're supposed to see the two of them sitting in in the theater and they're the distance from mm -hmm. each other a light comes on um yeah. that's very functional not a, yeah. Expressive and uh, yeah, I guess minimalism is kind of a. Although this is like kind of unusually florid, it seems like yeah, almost for I'm not sure that I would necessarily. I'm yeah, I'm I'm not really sure that I I would have seen minimalism in this. Although like yeah. in like uh, the, the the subject matter is so tied to the experience of you watching it mm -hmm. that in a sense there is a paring down of yeah. of this experience that I think lends itself to what I understand minimalism to be. Mm -hmm. um, I think, I guess, I think you're right. It is as far as, I mean, I have seen a lot more of his films and I think some of them are more minimal than others. And yeah, compared to some of the other films is, you know, there's a bit more going on, but there's this drabness to, I guess, to it. There's a sort of, 
I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking more of the framing of it, the camera, but it's all very utilitarian. It's all very, there's not much. No, um, establishing shots, for instance. Yeah, no. Oh, uh, when, when there's a, when there's a cut to, to a, a temporal or a spatial cut, yeah. it starts with the figures already in the frame and talking, <laughs> for instance. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so there's a very, I mean, what can we fit in this frame and how can we not have to move this frame at all? I think this is still a very minimalistic film and I think we could even talk about, if you want to talk about other, other how other cinephiles from this period would film this movie, I think it would be totally different. And I think of that group, Mouillet is far and away the one least interested in filmic images, but he's the most interested in filmic ideas in a certain way. I mean, I think because there is something, there is something pretty funny about the idea of, I mean, I like that he presents all the Kaidu cinema crowd as this sort of nerdy, slobbish kind of uh, dorky group who don't really. He doesn't smoke too bad was a good line. Right, yeah. <laughs> and thought of us being reactionaries. That's something that we forget yeah. because oh, yeah, it's definitely. come down to us at. You know, especially uh, Ravat and Godard and Moulet are, you know, on the left, men at the left. Yeah. Um, but really, they were regarded oh, with yeah. suspicion by the left. During oh, this, yeah, especially Postif and other newspapers who were more left-leaning. And a lot of their film choices were considered to be reactionary. They didn't like what was generally considered to be the acceptable art cinema of the time. They were writing stuff about Hollywood filmmakers who people considered to be conservative or otherwise. So I think, but I think he does, I think it's funny the way he pokes fun at that and the pronunciation of names, for example, is also sort of an interesting thing, which I think, you know, if Carl was here, he could. Yeah. But I think it's something that's still, I still, you know, there's a cockiness to that sort of idea of the cinephile. Uh, that I think still exists, and I think it's fun to sort of poke fun at that, the well, slobbish kind of. It's really, it's cinephilia is like kind of, it shows you how different it is from uh, other forms of people who love art, like um, it was writing down all the credits and taking notes, like yeah. now we all think of that as a given, like of course you go on IMDB and you look at the, mm -hmm. who's who produced it and who yeah. did the sound, and you, you get all this extra information about it, yeah. but I think we forget that at that time it wasn't just like, it wasn't, wasn't all easy, that accessible. Yeah. So like mm -hmm. you really did have to be in a club and you really did have to like find people who could get you mm -hmm. the inside yeah. scoop and like, yeah. so there was, there was camaraderie about it that you don't really have to have today. Yeah. Like you yeah. can, like I would say probably people in this room are sort of self-taught and found out most of that stuff on their own. but. I think like then it was totally different, and probably even into the even into the '90s when you know he's making I, these films. Yeah. I, I had a friend a couple of years ago who went to the Rivet retrospective in New York, and uh, I forget which film we're talking about, but I asked him how it was, and he, the first thing he said was, "It was great. There were so many people taking notes in the audience." <laughs> so before he even talked about the the film, he talked about yeah. the, the audience. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Like, I mean, there, it has this yeah. sort of like. Not artificiality to it, but uh, one one doesn't necessarily do it totally out of necessity. No, um, it's it you do it. Yeah, you do it in a sense because you want to belong, and people do that now through blogs well, yeah. and. And he talks things. about it sort of also, which is sort of true. Like trying to differentiate yourself. Like there's the one character talking about Fred Neumeier and the person. 106 films is actually 107. Like this idea of cataloging everything, like you being the expert on something yeah. to distinguish yourself from. And then at the end when all the people are there and he feels like maybe this is a bad film because everybody likes it now. So this, I mean, I think we still have that idea that mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's popular, maybe there's something wrong with it. And, and I think the extreme availability of all of that information encourages like a hyper expertmanship or something like that. Um, uh, with people having a very similar reaction only on like a much broader, huger scale. <laughs> the cultivation of obscure taste. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know. I just like, and that was that was that was the filmmaker as sort of the tax man also, berating the theater owners. I think what's interesting about it too is this idea of film as consumerism versus film as art. 
So the theater is interested in making money and filling the seats, having different prices. And at the same time, there's the cinephiles who are interested in seeing the films as they are intended to be shown, the length, oh, etc. Like as the sort of religious experience, you know, exactly. To be. <laughs> yeah. At least that's presented, presented in this. Yeah, film. and the theater owners who don't understand really why you seems to totally be not like making a critique of, but wanting to wanting to show is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to it. Yeah, because there, there is a greater attention. The 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 religious ties is a good one. There's a greater attention to the ritual of it than to the substance of what actually happens. Yeah. I don't have any sense of what any of those movies were about. I only yeah. have a sense of yeah. the ways that people were not watching them. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. And then there's the great scene at the end where the kid can't find a seat in the front row because yeah. all the adults are there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there are a lot of pokes at both the idea of a movie theater that's for popular film and also the idea of these sort of cinephiles as kind of kids in themselves in a way. So it's, it's very, I mean, I think it's a really funny movie. I like that it pokes fun at cinephilia and the whole idea of Cahiers du Cinema versus Postif as sort of like the arch enemies and stuff. I think it's a very interesting take on that whole era, you know. So uh, this is kind of a bit more specific question and I guess it's open to interpretation unless people have read any interviews or whatever movie he has given. But are these like, are, are his Cahiers, I mean, he, he, he references the name of the journal specifically, Cahiers du Cinema. Um, by the way, it's a really funny gag with Cahiers Positif. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, are these like his buddies? Are they supposed to be stand-ins for the other uh, um, personalities? Because um, you would think like the old guy with the bow tie has to be, <laughs> if anyone, Romare. Romare. And then I, he's trying yeah. to think about killing himself. <laughs> like, it's all very strange. Is this, yeah. are we do y'all do y'all think we we're supposed to kind of like um, be connecting the dots? In I don't know if there's supposed wow. to be like <laughs> stereotypes of the character or an actual yeah based on an actual person, but I think I mean I don't know for sure. I haven't read any pieces of him talking about his period, but I think it was a bit antagonistic because he was kind of this young kid who came in, and I think people like Rivette and Romare felt a bit like they were a bit standoffish towards him. I know Godard always liked him, but I don't really know. I don't know for sure what the relationship was with the other writers or filmmakers of the group. I think he I think he had a better relationship with kind of the people who would be considered kind of just after the sort of classic French New Wave group, but I don't know for sure. But there was I guess we can go to. I think it's an interesting question which is that that Ben posed before we started recording, which is how do you think some of the other filmmakers of Cahiers du Cinema would make a film about the 50s going, being cinephiles and writing for Cahiers du Cinema, you know, Godard, Romer, Rivette, Chabral, Truffaut, et al. I mean, Mouillet is very tongue-in-cheek. I think he, there's a fondness he remembers of it, but I think there's a, an absurdity, like he thinks it's kind of silly to a certain extent as well. But I wonder, I mean, this is open up to whatever people want to say, but how would the other filmmakers, I think, approach the same subject? I think it's an interesting question. Well, I think there are some examples already of how they would approach the idea. Um, Godard, I'm thinking of Anna Karina in, um, what is that, a woman? No, well, my, my life to live. Crying as John. Crying, Lee. so it's like... Um, or even Masculine Feminine, where he, where Jean-Pierre Lyot goes up and is angry because it's in the wrong aspect ratio. Yeah. But then at the end, he feels let down by the images. If, if, if Godard had made this film, he would make the, the main character in, involved in some sort of criminal behavior. To yeah. <laughs> that, that'd be the, the key. But there'd also be, there'd also be a woman who also watches movie, yeah. movies in Godard films. Like in this film, the woman is, well, the woman he goes on a date with, not the not the female critic, is like totally uninterested in film, and she just goes to make out, which is what I think most people did. That's what I think Truffaut would show. He would just show people like Truffauts. I mean, Truffaut would make a mess of this. It'd just be nostalgia. Oh yeah, with yeah. Like, totally lots of like yeah. like yeah. I- irises and yeah. like yeah. Yeah. shit like that. It would be total romantic. Be yeah, yeah it would be very romantic. You know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't charming and all this. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very this 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 um 
this role playing is a very energetic reperformance of what we were seeing critique. Yes, definitely. Yeah. But like, what, what, what would we want to get at by like thinking about uh, what these other, how these other critics would have just, portrayed that? Just indulgence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's all I see. We're doing exactly what the film exactly. does. Yes. <laughs> see, Romare would have like he the the critic has has this girlfriend who's also. Uh, follows the Kyrie's line, uh -huh. but he would be tempted by the positive woman. Yeah, <laughs> she's yeah, exactly. boring. Yeah, yeah. There'd be and a there'd love be, triangle. Yeah. <laughs> they get close. He'd sit down next to her, but eventually yeah. realize by the time the movie's over yeah. that <laughs> the Kyrie's exactly. And it would be all outside the theater of them talking about the film they just saw, <laughs> instead of actually showing the films. <laughs> now, how would Rivet do it? <laughs> but I think what we were getting Rivet, they would all be watching a film of people rehearsing a film. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> There'd be a lot more shots of the, at the Kyrie's office. Probably. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Be important. Detectives, <laughs> people behind grass, peeking out of things. Okay. Yeah. Um, Josh, you were asking. I think like part of the point, other than just indulging ourselves, is like some of the filmmakers themselves are, I think, a lot more serious cinephiles than other ones, and like some of them, you know, work so much harder. Some of them, I mean, you know, you can think they're all great filmmakers, but it's like apparent watching their films that some of them love mm -hmm. to watch movies more yeah. than other directors. Like, it is very different to experience something than to, to make it. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, that's, that's something that I, I see in understanding what minimalism is, mm -hmm. because there's such a thing as a minimal gesture which is not experienced minimally. Mm -hmm. There's such a thing as minimal experience which is produced like maximally, like people work really, really, really hard for something that's very simple. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I've, all right, your point is taken. Was the feud between uh, the Cayers de Cinema and the uh, Postif? Well, yeah, I mean, at the, t at the time, so Postif is kind of like a very leftist, very, they would be considered, they would be into more artistic, arty filmmakers at the of the time. Maybe Commits. your Antonioni, your Bergmans. Committed. I mean, it's yeah. not a good, so like the dominant, the dominant um, uh, uh, cultural politics at the time is very much like everything's still marked by World War II. And so there's the sense if you create culturally, if you're an artist or a writer, you have to stake out a position here. And the, the, the extremes of the positions are what, what clashed in Europe in World War II, which were fascism and uh, you know, communism, really. Um, and so post -war, and this is articulated most forcefully after the war by Sartre and the existentialism is kind of the hegemonic um, philosophy and, and, and social out, uh, outlook. Um, and so there's this sense, you know, with like the positif, uh, that um, if you don't stake out a position, and, it, and especially if you, or if you stake it out of position and it's conservative, then you're the enemy, you're just reactionary. And that's what they saw Cayers doing, because Cayers were um, kind of on the spectrum from conservative to apolitical. Apathetic. Yeah. Do we do we read uh, do we read um, the critics uh, um, that fascist? Do we read any of that into that that short name calling? Yeah, I think like totally. Really that's that's, that's right. the right. exact cool. fascist reactionary. Right. These were the kind of salient terms. Right. Yeah, and it's just uh, I guess cinematically. I mean, Kaye is into exalting Hollywood filmmakers. You know, this is when sort of the idea of the auteur theory. And the idea of Hitchcock and uh, Howard Hawks, John Ford, that you can be popular and commercial but still have a distinctive style is coming in. Whereas Postif would be on the other side. They would say that those films are crass and commercial. And so there's this kind of... They're like Coca-Cola. Exactly. It's kind of like... Right. They're, yeah. The the time, like Hollywood and Coca-Cola were invading yeah, France. Exactly. And they, they're closer to fascism than right. anything else. Right. Um, but I guess in the end, Positif didn't do anything, and Kaiju Cinema did the new wave. So yes, I guess... This is the first time I've ever heard of Positif. Positif. I, <laughs> I think they're still around. Are they still around? I think they might still be around. I mean, like... 
I mean, Caillou Cinema's still around, but they suck. Caillou's moved to the ultra left. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it's kind of like the irony of this period. Yeah. Um, although now that's it's 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 almost garbage. Um, yeah, it's it's terrible. Uh, I don't know if Postif is still around. I think so. But that's kind of yeah. I mean, that's sort of the uh, what's going. That's the rivalry there um, between the two. <laughs> Dante Alman was recently featured in the third issue of the Shooting Wall Zine. Each issue of the zine, we choose a filmmaker who's making stuff that we find interesting. Dante's films are a mix of no wave, experimental, erotica, and horror cinema. Carl Stark rather sat down with Dante and got to know about his cinema and his life. That's the thing I, I, won't, yeah. I always try to point out. I think you told me that once, and I think that's... I've no, never been drunk. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I hate that. I think it's complete. Okay, that's great. I mean, no, but that, <laughs> I, if you ever kind of get drunk and do anything yeah. cinematic, it's impossible. So you can't be drunk. Maybe like a Irish poet or mm-hmm. that's offensive. But, but lots, um, of people on, lots of people <laughs> on drugs have done lots of artistic things, though. I think it's a lot of bullshit, the whole, you have to be good at drugs, and everyone, I think it's uh, people that say, like, oh, this person must have been drugs when they uh, when they did this. I think it's because they, they don't like any actual, they don't have the ability to make opinions. They, they, they're not intelligent, so that's where they'll mm-hmm. usually go, and they'll go, if it's not, like, the notebook, it, they'll say, oh, this person must have been on drugs. I work at the Vermont Film Institute, and Dante, there's a thing that we, I used to, at the time, met him at the open screen there, and I'm pretty sure someone must have asked that probably comes up a lot, and I I honestly think that a you don't your drug your films aren't about drugs, and yeah, that b uh, people that say that just aren't intelligent. It's not at Bryn Mawr, It was at North Third Bar where it really happened. There's an open screen there as well. Yeah, I've, I've somebody said so. You're really you think you're that cool, something like that, and I was like, wow, this is really. And intense. that's why we're doing shooting. <laughs> um, so, but they did say to me. I got up on stage after, and the guy, the lead guy, said to me, "Who was high?" I believe at the time. He said to me, "So, please tell us the year you started to be a drug user." And I said to him, "I've actually because, never." Yeah, yeah exactly. I, so. I know the host there. And he definitely. He's gonna. He'll probably hear this eventually. But the, he's uh, a great guy. I loved him. No, yeah. It, it, yeah, but mm-hmm. it's it's like that's definitely certain environment. I think the weird thing about film, and you could probably talk about this, is that at open screen, like unless like if you go to a punk show, you're gonna see punk. But film's so weird where. You can have people that do music videos, that do television, that do commercials, and they all are supposed to be friends, and this is never going to happen. You're not going to yeah. have those people there. Like Some of them will play, they'll do YouTube news stories or something. And it's mm-hmm. like they're not going to like. Mm-hmm. That's why you kind of need to put people together, and that's the weird thing about film. But yeah, if you're, if you're in a metal band, you play with metal bands. Of course. But you yeah. don't have that with film. We all got to get along, even though somebody might be doing a really terrible student short film about a guy and a girl meet and they just hold hands and it's like completely not real and it's that's what and then every most people think that what i do is absolutely terrible so october panic attack it's where you uh every day of the week you get people out of their house weekends um predominantly the friday saturday sunday mm-hmm. but you do uh, almost every day of the month right um no, this year, it's mostly confined to the to the weekends, and then there's there's a lot in September too. But but, yeah. but you also you'll you'll if you might not even go to something right, you'll I think in the past you'll 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 also do stuff. You'll also recommend things. I think sometimes. totally. October panic attack became something like something else last year, um, where we do reviews for haunted attractions, and now. Yeah, I saw them on so websites. It's like, so it's like, whoa. And then it links to Apartment 1014 Films, and now we're doing ads for some of the haunted attractions. Yeah. So it's like, holy crap, dude, this is, wow, this is like a dream come true. <laughs> like, this is awesome, you know. But um, so it has become something other than just the, the, the spooky characters in my living room. Now it's like branching no, out. But you, so yeah, this October Panic Attack is, you basically have a website. It's very organized. Mm-hmm. Every day of the week, you mm-hmm. can have an RSVP thing. Yep. 
you you organize. I think if people need help getting there, yep. you, you'll do something. They'll figure something out. Um, it's very organized. And then what you'll do um, – but I also wanted to say that you'll do things at your house. And then I was in one of those, and it was great. And it was almost like being in one of your movies. Yeah. Which I think is what you're trying to do. And then um, – so I think that's what was interesting about it was that it was like a month of being in Dante's head. And then when you did the review, I saw some of the videos you did for some of the Haunted Hayrides, and it was like watching a Don, uh, like one of your films interpretation of the hay, of the Haunted Hayride or the Haunted House. Oh, wow, so be you yeah. like talking, doing kind of your like essay film type of thing of the camera, while also just like having shots of the which is yeah, so that's 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 a good wow, that's a, that's an interesting yeah. And and there's you know, there's yeah, I, I, there's been a bridge, and, and like kind of like the when you're sitting in the living room and there's these people coming out, and you know it's Dante dressed as different characters and his wife, and and they're they're going off on these bizarre things, and and, and you're getting wet, and there's weird things happening in the room. It's kind of just my just what I love to do. It's not even like I'm trying to. It's just everything that we're doing is pretty much just what I, I was. Just, we were just talking about this. Um, I don't try. Like I'm not trying to make it anything. I'm just like. I think this would be a good idea. <laughs> That's, you know, and no, but they, there's definitely the one. The I think I maybe been to two of your more theatrical things, and I think that there is definitely like I don't know if you were a script before yeah, or I do. okay, so yeah, yeah. I mean, there is like you are trying to say something in definitely, a weird way, definitely, yeah. But um, it's interesting that we're in your room, and you said to me, I think you were saying that even if no one showed up, you might still go through with doing it. I, I have, we have, mm -hmm. yeah. But have. usually people do show up. But, uh, I mean, when I was there, yeah, there was a few people, and it was a very unique experience. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's also just it's at your house. Yeah. You're not – I think that's where – that's why it's more fun because if you uh, take it and you try to make this big thing, yeah. I think you lose – it's so creative as you get to do so much because you're in, you get to control the space. We live in a – we essentially live in a haunted house for two months. My, my wife um, – I mean, she's in the kitchen, and she moves a plate, and there's – you know, a, a severed leg hanging there. I mean, the, the whole house is like that the whole month. It's, uh, you know, on, on Halloween night, we have a full-fledged haunted attraction. We turn the house into yeah. an attraction. And, and um, you know, it's not politically correct in a lot of form of fashion. And I think that um, that's what people... We have lines outside the door. People, kids are coming in here, and there's babies, you know, and, and weird things happening everywhere. And we... I'm influenced by the haunted house's... I went to as a kid, and they were never politically correct. They were scary and yeah, weird, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and so there's that element I think too that we're. It's not meant to be cheesy. It's meant to be terrifying, or you know, like bizarre and weird and a nightmare or something. You know, I don't know. And it's like being in a. It's like in being an ep uh, feature length on Dale Ultimate. <laughs> how long does the? How long is the usually the haunted house every year? Um, the haunted to, to to get through. Yeah. Um, the haunted house. We we typically will, it's divided into two parts. Two parts. So um, a person can go through the first part and they say, "I don't want to do the second, which happens a lot. Then we say, "Okay, but you can leave." You know. Um, but um, we have a lot of actors in here, um, and it can take about. I don't know. Um, it was the living room, the kitchen, and the basement last year, and the year before it was the living room up the steps and we then we locked them in the bathroom and somebody was in the shower. So there was, there was like a there was like a lot of every year we change it. And it's a weird thing because you're saying it's not politically correct, but I'm sure in some ways it, it brings is. the community it together, which is weird. But I'm sure it does. You're, 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 do the neighbors know uh, you guys around here? Well there's a there's one woman in particular and I told her this last year, she brought her screaming child in here and I thought it was like borderline child abuse, but she she made her kid do it and, and the kid was screaming and um when when the woman came out the woman said and the girl started the little girl started to laugh at the end or, or smile and the woman said thank you so much for doing this you know she's too young to trick-or-treat i just lost my car today and i'm i have no money and what i just experienced in this like five minutes or whatever she's like made me completely forget about all that and i was like yes. <laughs> well, i'll say this uh, 1014 has been around since 2005 and we have never made one cent on anything. So I've sold a lot of things, but I've never broken even. And then we, most of the time, we got in this thing for about a year where we just were like, you know what? Let's act like we're nonprofit and let's give to charities that are outcast charities like psoriasis. Yeah, like, yeah. Like freaking angioma. 
like stuff that, or, or restless leg syndrome or, you know, stuff that like people are in hell over, but nobody talks about. Everybody's doing the, the big charities. But what about restless legs? People can't even freaking sleep. And, <laughs> no, and, and your, you know. your filmmaking is like breaking the ice for that because it's not weird to go to one of your things and go, I'm doing a thing for restless leg syndrome or... No, but I, I, you're right. I, you're right. I also just wonder, I just thought you had someone in your family with... Uh, didn't someone... You didn't have anyone with the skin issue or... Yeah, I did. Well, um, that movie, Eight, which has psoriasis in it, was inspired yeah. by a friend who works at a shop right uh, near my job. And one day I came in, he had psoriasis, and it impacted me so much at the, the hell that he was going through um, that I started writing about it. And then we found out when we filmed Eight that one of the women we already cast had psoriasis for 15 I years. I remember that, and yeah. couldn't wear a long sleeve shirt. So we were like, holy crap! You know, so it was, it meant a lot. You know, in a lot of ways, and we had to be true to that too. And so, and so yeah, you're like a, you're a good human being. Why, why do you, um, why, why is it that you get something out when someone tells you that I lost my car and you help my day or you do a um, charity thing? Because in my, um, in in me being a, a, a selfish type of human being, there, there's a there is a um, there is a it's a philosophy major. Yeah, it, there is a, uh, I do, kind of really love. Um, making people, uh, not, I don't want to say make people happy. I, lo I almost feel like sometimes I tell my wife this, I feel like, uh, maybe, maybe some of my mission in life is, um, like everybody is always buying birthday gifts for kids. But when you become an adult, they stop buying birthday gifts for you. I felt like, I feel like my goal in life is to buy birthday gifts for adults, not kids. You're like creating... Uh, it's not like you're a casino or something. It's not like a, like, but like the whole like adult playground thing. But you're creating magic in people's lives. But that at the same time, that's frightening to me to be a person like that because I mean like the whole thing of shooting wall or anything I've ever done in my life. I'm into really collective things and I like that. But that takes a lot of effort, a lot of strain. And sometimes it's so much anxiety prone that you're worried that people aren't going to get behind you. But then you're kind of proving that wrong, and everyone should maybe go make life like a like a like a play, or make life more like a magic. Magic is a big word, I think, in most of the things that I try and do. I, I, I there's there's that element. It's uh, I want to feel. There's a feeling. It's all. It's a lot of feeling. There's a lot of feeling, and uh, you know. But uh, yeah, but, I, I don't have a lot of people behind me. And that's the other thing too. I, I'm kind of used to people making fun of me, or I kind of thrive on that a little bit actually. Yeah, but I, yeah, I think people are criticizing you because they, uh, I mean, it's just, I, it's just, it's just, it's just strange. I guess it'll be like that's part of the magic of you or something that I, it's just, you have this uh, spark that you go and do something that for me seems like completely alien to anything in my life that I'm just going to go put on a play in my living room or I'm going to go <laughs> drive a girl into a ditch. But your films, in a lot of ways, are like kind of capturing the reality that you're making. You're mm -hmm. kind of just like... Mm -hmm. And then what was the first uh, film you made? It was never supposed to be a movie, and I was never supposed to make movies. I, After the first October panic attack, I was very lonely in my apartment and very depressed because I had people living in my apartment for a month, essentially, in the dark. I took all the light bulbs out and with masks on, and it was wild. And I was sitting at home, and I said, what can I do for Thanksgiving to bring more people here? Can I do, like, a Thanksgiving panic attack? Or, I mean, you know, like, what am I going to oh, do? Oh, yeah, okay. So I said, I know what I'll do. I'll write a script, and we'll make a like a just we'll just make this movie, and it'll be a great event, and then we'll watch it at the end and have fun and laugh and you know whatever. And and I said I'll give them the scripts twenty minutes before we film, so nobody can memorize anything. Little did I know that was going to be the, uh, the foundation of every movie we do. And I I said let's just do this. So we had a blast. I was filming the whole thing. We didn't edit it at all. We just you know stopped the camera, took three rehearsals film stop the camera and then by the end we all sat down we said let's watch this thing it's gonna be funny right we sat down and watched it and i was like um hmm okay this is and everybody was in the room they're like wait a second this isn't just a joke i don't think and i said yeah and I, I don't this is not a joke like i don't i, don't, I, I mean and something something started yeah. to something i was like I always wanted to make movies, but I couldn't. Like, well, how am I, what am I going to do? Nothing. You know, that was my, always my mentality. I'm nothing. But when I did that, I said, you know, I don't care if it's nothing. I want to keep doing this. Like, something is happening right here. Like, I don't know what it is, but... And then it just a rampage started after that. <laughs> that, was, that was, you know, but... But you, you, were you... Um, 
the, what, what was this film? Was this mm, uh, Turkzilla? That was okay. That was your first film. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think it's interesting about filmmaking that, um, and I'm more more I make films, you sort of learn that a lot of people are there's like a uh, contingency of people waiting for people like you and me to tell them. And that's the same thing with like uh, October Panic, and that's the interesting thing about. I think filmmakers, I guess, are were, were we might be selfish and like very like everything is mine, like my vision, my vision. Same time, we're also very collective people, mm-hmm. and I think it's the same people like they're in like it's like it's likens to music. And you have a film that you made recently. Um, what was that one called? Hobby. Hobby, but the hobby was um, had some connection between filmmaking, and like collective art, and doing that thing. And I think that uh, there's people, and there's a lot of people in your films that keep popping up. It's like the whole Ed Wood thing and whatever. Like, he had that little family around him. Yeah. And I think a lot of filmmakers have had that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, I, yeah, I guess it's... Um, and you've always done that. You were doing this before you were making films. There were 22 people coming over your house at 1 a.m. You've been a collective person. Yeah, that's... Yeah. And, but you were into film, too, because you... I talked to you about film, and I'm going to ask you in a Obsessed. second. yeah. Yeah, it's so like you like the horror films, or you were exposed to horror films when you are younger, but you also... You, you just don't like... Like one 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 day you might be at some uh, erotic seventies horror film, That's but the right. next day you might be at Hitchcock film. The next day you might be at Ingmar Bergman film. Yeah, exactly. The next day you might be at a slasher film. And yeah. I think that's where you and I connect because th- these are underground films. I'm I personally don't think I'm ever gonna get a ton of money to make films, or I I will never have money to make films. So I look at those films. I'm like they do something with a lot, little bit of budget, and they sometimes are really highly intelligent. Yeah. So what do you like? What um, what got like? What are some of your? What was your film history up sure. until 2005 when you did Turkzilla? There were pinnacle moments. Um, uh, pinnacle moments that could be defined by the films. Okay. So I mentioned earlier um, the first film I remember watching was the original Halloween. Okay. So that impacted me greatly as a child, where I experienced fear and liked it, um, but. As I got older, I, I might be out of order here, but I'm gonna I'm gonna just name them. There are pinnacle moments. Pinnacle moments would be um, uh, the Seventh Seal uh, by Igmar Bergman, um, Pulp Fiction. Um, pinnacle moments would be um, House of a Thousand Corpses, which people right now are probably like, "What, Igmar Bergman?" Um, and then um, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, um, and there are these moments that something happened to me um, in a in a movie way inside of me. Like something's these are these are these moments um, where these things were definitely something was happening and it was impacting me greatly. Um, and um, there's a movie called Clue from the '80s based on the Warner on the uh, board game yeah. that impacted me greatly as well. Um, Desperately Seeking Susan uh, with Madonna. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of there were a lot of things that impacted me greatly. The, the horror genre impacted me greatly for a lot of reasons, obviously. But like you said, I was always um, um, use a word, but uh, movies displaying the outcast in some form or fashion. Um, and um, I, 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 this word has neg- a lot of negative connotation, but I don't think it should. Uh, sleazy. Films that had a, 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 a sleazy type of uh, vibe about them. Uh, a lot of the, the erotic films, um, Christina Lindbergh, um, Jess Franco as a director. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he's uh, His film, Vampires Lesbos, was another turning which point. Is like, which is a title that you read, and then I'm like, why is Dante making me... He's like, you should really check out this movie. Yeah, which is a porno. Yeah, I mean, that's that, essentially... Or you don't even know... I mean, you know, and he is he is essentially, you know... Destroyed as a pornographer. That's what he is. He's just a pornographer, and he's not. But isn't Vampires Lesbos like? There's kind of just like a lot of uh, just really beautiful cinematography for yes. like 45 minutes or something. Yes, totally. It's not like it's not like sex scene, sex scene, sex scene, right. sex scene. And then yeah. at the end, there's just like a yeah, it's it, it, a lot it, of it, sex, but but yeah, it's, but, it's, but, but yeah. it's not just like for no reason. No, I guess. you're right. So so th- these are pinnacle but moments. He's an under, and he's also like an underground filmmaker. Because I was reading that yeah. he makes a lot of stuff, and he'll just do whatever budget he can. Two hundred and fifty movies he made. Yeah, which is ridiculous. Definitely, um, but yeah, you will. Um, so those are the pinnacle. You know, um, I, I sometimes I, I you know I always tell uh, people not just with my films, but I feel like myself. Like, I'll go to a horror convention. We love going to horror conventions. And I'll be hanging out with people. And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, we're on the same page. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I'll bring up something. I'm like, oh, I don't fit in. And oh, then I'll yeah, go yeah, somewhere yeah. else. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then I'll mention something horror. And they're like, 
what? Yeah, I, I, I mean, that, I think that's where we connect because... Um, <laughs> that's, you know, you like John Hughes? What? You just told me you like Jess Franco. What is wrong with you? Like, yeah, like if you go to yes. MoMA, they won't like you. <laughs> if you go to horror film convention, they won't like that's you. That's exactly right. Um, so there is an element of, of that, you know, through, you know, through... Your, what? Your own films. In my own films, that, that, that's all in there. You know, like there's... They're not horror enough for the horror fans, so they get pissed off. And for the... They're too artsy for the horror fans, but for the artsy people, they're too horror and too weird... Um, and offensive or something. And then for the weird people, they're too boring. So it's like, I don't know what the heck to do, it's you know? God. What? If you mentioned God. Oh, my gosh. Oh, that's yeah, the other I, thing. The, yeah. the, 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 I'm blasphemous to Christians and religious people, but to people who are atheists, I've had a, people come up to me and say, I'm deeply, I love the movie, but I'm deeply offended by how many times you said God in the movie. It's well, I, was, me off. I wanted to get at... Um, yeah. Like, I try to explain, like, oh, Dante will talk about, like, he'll come to an event, he'll talk about, like, porno, but then he'll talk about a Bible, like, the Bible. <laughs> so, like, you'll, you'll do you'll do that, and then it's like, yeah. people are like, well, you can't have a movie where there's, uh, like, a demon or, I, I, or something. Right. You can't have, like, a, a right. movie where there's a person who's a turkey, and then... Yes, and then... Or, or, or naked women, and then and then have religion. And have religion, holy crap! And I think that's, yeah. I saw like one of the first films I ever saw by you. You were on a couch, and you were having you're hooking up with a um, blow up doll in your film. Yes. And you, then you were talking about the Bible at the same time. Yeah. And afterwards, you went up and you were talking about the Bible. Yeah. And I got what you were saying, but I yeah. think um, but most people will be deeply offended, and they have been over that movie. The that film in particular, um, the scene uh, it, there's a scene in the film where I take my clothes off. And I put on a woman's dress, and then I yeah. lay down on a couch, and um, I I take this blanket off, and there's a blow-up doll underneath. I take the blow-up doll, throw it away, and there's a Bible on the couch. And instead of laying with the blow-up doll, I lay with the Bible. Um, you know, essentially, I was working off of a ton of different uh, symbols that are used in the Bible by me wearing a dress. Um, but the average Christian would be... Would, like, yeah. would be like, you know what, I don't want to hear what your symbol you're working off of. This is completely unacceptable trash you know and um so it's it's uh but anyway my my um um i always i always kind of said uh theology is in my movies um yeah i had no and, idea you're a theology major because yeah. you seem very hard to articulate religion my struggles um with my faith are in a lot of my movies and not just with my own faith there's one movie in particular called dinky winky um, which a lot of people tend to really love. It's one of our popular ones, I think, if that we can even say that word. Um, but that movie is about spiritual outcasts, people who uh, do not feel like they fit in spiritually, and they're trying their best to. And in the movie, there's a girl who is wearing garters to a church, um, and she has blood all over her chest. Um, and the church completely ignores the girl. And then, Which would happen. Right? And then she kills her. She she kills herself um, while the church people look at her. And people watch that movie sometimes and they say, who don't know me very well, and they might say something like, hey, right on, man. Right on, man. That's right, man. F the church, man. F God. That's right, man. And I'm like, uh, it's not really. I mean, that's actually, if you really knew what I thought, you probably would think I was even crazier. But, 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 but you that's, want them to like you. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah I mean, I, I don't want you to beat me up. No, but, you know, there's... Um, it's, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't think that, uh, my faith is easy to me at all. Um, and so I also don't think life is, so I don't think the films have to be. Um, and it, and I'm making a lot of connections now talking to you. The whole thing about you, you're interested in outcasts your whole life. You're not interested in the, the hardline atheist. You're not interested in the hardline Christian you're not interested in your films are not for hardline horror fans. Your films not for hardline mm. uh, people that go to art museums or something. Or trying to try to find these people that would identify with your films. Your your, yeah. your films are about outcasts. You're into outcasts, but also you want to find outcasts or connect. You know, it's weird as you're saying this. I'm, I'm thinking about this. This is interesting. I, I I don't know if it's so much that as it is. I'm trying to show. I'm trying to relate. Like, one of the best things somebody can say after they watch one of the films is, Dante, I feel that exact same way 
I have asked that exact same question, but I've never said it to anybody before. Yeah. That happens a lot now. Um, the Zeno Ellen Sexy God movie, which is probably my most Christian and anti-Christian film. Um, <laughs> how's that even possible? No, it's my most very theological film. Um, I, had, I had a girl email me who lived in another state who bought the movie off the site. And uh, she said the movie, she said it impacted me more than anything I've ever seen before. But she didn't tell me how. And I didn't need to know how. All I needed to know was that she related to it somehow. And if that was it, if she asked the same questions about God, or if she had the same type of faith, or if she did, that's all I, that, or if she just identified with the obscurity. I don't know, you know? It was just, but there is a, there is that element of, of uh, not like I'm trying to reach the outcast, but I'm trying to show the people who aren't outcast that they are, and that they're just not admitting some of these things. I think that may be something that I, I do a lot. Like, oh, and you've, you, when you were like in high school, you're saying that you got the people that when necessarily uh, their friends are saying while you're hanging out with Dante right. or the probably the like the more uh, the punk guys might have they, their friends might have still been saying while you're hanging out with Dante because you're not. And I think that's the thing about. Um, yeah, I think it's ultimately again. It's like what is um, it's. I don't know. It's very hard being human. And it I is. Th- and I think yeah. that. Um, it is. You're saying you don't write scripts, but you definitely they're definitely thought out. And there's definitely things you did um, uh, in your the feature, which I think uh, needs to get uh, seen more or something. And you just did a screening at the Colonial Theater in Phoenixville. At the Colonial, that was how was that? That was awesome. Um, I mean, you know, we had 12 people, which for us is like. You know, especially in Phoenixville, which is, is is a little out of the way. Yeah, twelve people for us is like, holy crap! You know, I mean, it was unbelievable. Five people would have been amazing. You know, and we had we had people that we didn't know there, um, which was really special. And two people walked out. Like I think, I think it was like ten minutes in, which I was like, oh, the only thing that made me upset was the fact that they paid for the tickets. <laughs> but but the you know, so it was a really great experience because. Um, a lot of people have given me positive feedback about that movie that they that they some people have said it's their favorite one and, and all these different things. And I mean, I've seen all your films. I think that eight, I think that your films, um, I think eight was like it was good that it was long because you mm-hmm. got to say a lot of things and you got to put a lot of stuff. I've seen all the other films. It was like more of a concise package, mm-hmm. and I think that um, uh, that's what I liked about it, that it was like oh this is like kind of and I also think a lot of filmmakers you've made a lot of stuff before you did eight. So it was kind of like always. I would feel like it's a good introduction to Dante's films. Oh yeah. Because you say a lot of things in your short films. Yeah. And even some of your short films are thirty minutes or longer, so right. they're short in a sense, but they're still pretty long. That yeah, that's what I liked about. It. I was like, oh, this is like kind of like a recap of what I've taken in so far from yeah. Dante. My wife says that eight is a sixty-five minute, ten minute short of mine. That what you experience in a fifteen-minute film is you're not going to experience for 65 <laughs> and i yeah there is a there is a piece of that in there um some people say to me i'm glad it was 15 minutes because anymore i'm just it's making me crazy and then of course, but, the, but the, those aren't your but those aren't your people they're not really yeah they're not really the people you know there's i mean like most people haven't seen just franco films most people right. i don't think understand why someone like um uh, rob zombie mm-hmm is doing interesting things. I, I don't think that there's a lot of people understand that why you could watch Seven Seal, Enigma Bergman movie, and then go watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre Halloween. I, right. I, I think that there's right. this like disconnect with people, and there's these camps that are made, there's these niches made, and especially now with film, um, it's very hard to see anything that is good. Yep. And it's a uh, very, I rarely go to the theater, and when I do, it's usually to see something old. Yep. And uh, especially like if you go to an open screen in the city and any of them, you're not seeing necessarily stuff like your films there. Um, if you do see anything that's vaguely interesting, it's usually an experimental film, yep. and it's usually like 30 seconds long. It's like some animation major at like University of the yeah. Arts. And that's the person I go and talk to afterwards, yeah. and it's like, yeah. why don't you... Um, I'm actually going to pause. I have to go to the back.
You can check out Dante's month of Halloween events at OctoberPanicAttack.com. And you can also check out all 40-plus of his films at YouTube.com slash PoopyDiarrhea. That's YouTube.com slash P-O-O-P-Y-D-I-A-R-R-H-E-A. Next week, we'll be putting up the full interview with Dante. For our next podcast, we'll be doing sort of a uh, critical analysis of the Philadelphia Film Festival. We're going to be talking about what we experienced there this year and taking a look at mainstream film festivals in general. Thank you for listening for upcoming Shooting Wall events going on around the city, including screenings and reading groups. Please visit shootingwall.eventbrite.com. That's shootingwall.e-v-e-n-t-b-r-i-t-e.com. featured in this podcast includes John Zorn performing Ennio Morricone's The Big Gun Down, Nels Klein's solo in Rova, Orchestrova's electric performance of John Coltrane's Ascension, Sun City Girls' Dead Chick in the River, Simple Minds' Don't You. If you would like to submit your own music for a future podcast, as long as it isn't bland, twee, or indie, please email us at shootingwall at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Rob Mug Muggle Moo Muggy.